Welcome to the Sex, God, and Chaos podcast, a conversation built to help you address the mess, connect the dots, and defeat addiction. Doing your work matters because if nothing changes, then nothing changes. Life is tough and we're here to help. I'm your host, Ben Derrick, and as always, I'll be joined by Roan Hunter. Let's jump right in. Uh, we've got a, a repeat uh, offender, I mean, a repeat guest uh, today. Uh, man, uh, excited to have uh, uh, Tully Tullian Chavidjan uh, joining us again uh, to uh, talk about, uh, really, uh, mainly today, we're going to talk about his uh, book uh, that is uh, getting ready to come out, new book. Uh, he's written many books, uh, but this is the first endeavor uh, that he's had uh, after kind of going through uh, hell and back. And uh, I've I've read the book uh, most most of all of it, and boy, it is it is a powerful message of of what grace uh, is all about. the The title of the book is Carnage and Grace. Uh, yeah, Confessions of an Adulterous Heart. And man, uh, it is it is excellent. Uh, so Tully, uh, dude, glad to have you back uh, in the studio with us, and um, looking forward to uh, the book getting out there. I've already uh, just told several people, man, you got to read this book when it comes out. It's it's some powerful, powerful stuff. Well, thank you, Roan. It's it's good to be back with you. I'm pretty uh, picky and choosy about which podcasts I jump on. And uh, when I was thinking about the book and as it's coming out, what podcasts I would like to be on, yours is at the top of the list. So thank you for having me back. And you said it right. I am a repeat offender. I, I'm a, I, I know I'm a repeat guest, but I am absolutely a repeat offender. So you, you and me you both. Nailed it. Yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I understand it well. Um, you know, in the book, certainly it's uh, you know your story, uh, m- most of it around uh, your your very public failure, um, and and just the man the the realness uh, is is refreshing. Uh, one of the things you said in the book that I love, uh, we we talk about this. It's this idea of like you know there, there's a lot of Christians today, people that say. Oh yeah, you know I'm broken and I'm a sinner, but it, it's very vague. Uh, and and then you know when it when when sin actually happens and it comes out and it gets specific, boy, uh, we we don't practice uh, this thing called grace when we get when we get honest, uh, rigorously honest and specific with our sin. Uh, you talked about that in the book. Uh, I love that. Yeah, and sadly that's. That's true. Um, You know, I had somebody once say to me, people love it when you stand up in front of them and say, I'm broken just like you you are. I'm fallen just like you are until you do something that broken and fallen people do. And then it's social exile. And I think there is a sense of safety in saying generically, you know, I'm imperfect, I'm broken, I'm a sinner, I'm a fallen person. But then, like you said, when you start describing and getting specific about those particular areas of brokenness or fallenness or sin, the room gets real quiet real quick. Um, yeah. And there's a huge, you know, I talk about this in the book, but there's a huge difference between grace on paper and grace in practice, a huge difference between those two things. And, um, you know, I I haven't found too many people of faith that don't believe in grace on paper. Uh, But there are very few that actually believe grace in practice when the shit hits the fan, whether in Mm. their life or someone else's life. Uh, grace become, it's like we throw it out the window. We forget what it's all about. We forget what it is. So yeah, I mean, I talk about that and I don't, I don't spend a whole lot of time in the book talking about the failure of the church or the failure of the Christian community in handling real sin in the camp. I do talk about some of that only because as a result of my openness 
about my own story, my own adultery and crashing and burning and all that stuff and the loss that comes after that, the guilt that comes after that, the shame that comes after that, uh, the social exile that comes after that. People have opened up and sent me letters from all over the world uh, because they too have experienced something like that. And even though the circumstances may be different in all the letters I receive, there's this common thread of the Christian community being the scariest rather than the safest place for fallen people to fall down and for broken people to break things. And I would like to think that that would change at some point. I don't have a whole lot of confidence that it will. I think we're kind of stuck with what we got. And I was telling someone the other day that when you find a small enclave of people mm. that actually believe it, stick with it. I mean, mm-hmm. um, I mean, there there are those small sanctuaries, those small enclaves and refuges out there um, where, you know, we, we have one here at the sanctuary in Jupiter. And man, I'm telling you, uh, it is life-giving to be a part of a community of people who are self-aware enough to know their weaknesses and to know their struggles and to be open and honest about that stuff and to have a room full of people who don't blink at Mm -hmm. honest confessions is a real gift. Um, And so I, I, I love the fact that those places exist. I just don't think it's going to become a popular thing in the current evangelical industry that exists. It just it just won't be. And my friend Paul Zoll is quick to remind me, anytime I get optimistic or hopeful that it might all change for the better, he's quick to remind me, he's such a historian, and he's quick to remind me that the message of grace has never been well-received by the religious community, never. Um, and it never has been, and it most likely never will be. And so... Um, so when you find it, you kind of hold on to it with everything you got. Man, uh, well said, my friend. Um, you know, I've been in recovery from my full-blown sexual addiction since 1990. And, uh, it, you know, it, 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 and, yeah, uh, certainly uh, your friend Paul Zoll is, is spot on because it's just, it, it, it just doesn't happen, um, you know, the 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 norm is is certainly kind of what happened to you uh you know I always say Christians we we not only shoot our wounded uh we also gut them and eat them um it's it, it's it's and I've just seen it over the years uh you you kind of detail your uh exit uh, <laughs> uh your your dis- dissociation from the from Carl Ridge and the Presbyterian Church and Every one of those situations that, as a counselor, I've been involved in, you know, those situations with the the presbytery and the session and uh, some kind of form of church discipline or correction, but not one time have I ever seen that go well. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. And, you know, most of the time there's, it, it's doctors, lawyers, business people, um, and they there's no counselors, uh, there's no people helpers that are usually part of that process. And boy, the, the wounding and the, the way it's handled, it's just mishandled. And that's just I've, been I, No, I've seen real. the same thing. Unfortunately, I've seen the same thing. And, you know, the, the truth of the matter is um, while uh, discipline is certainly a good thing and is necessary, Oftentimes we take matters so much into our own hands that we don't allow God to be the primary mm. disciplinarian. And, um, you know, another thing my friend Paul Zoll told me years ago uh, was that when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Mm. And to be honest with you, when, um, when I was being... When, it was, when I was under consideration, when everything came out and my affairs were made public... Um, the presbytery that I was a part of, uh, the, the head of the committee that deals with issues regarding ministers, uh, sat down with me and basically outlined the process. They said, listen, there's, a, there's I, you know, I, I need a written confession from you, which I did, uh, and then we will discuss it, and we will decide at that point on one of two 
one of two avenues. One would be to put you through sort of a disciplinary restoration process, and the other would be to just simply defrock you, you know, strip you of your credentials, and you're no longer a, you know, a minister in our denomination. And never had a meeting with the presbytery, never had a meeting with even that committee, just that guy. And, uh, and I understand some of the pressure they were under because my situation was so public and people were watching everything they were doing. Um, and they decided uh, to go ahead and just defrock me. My defrockment was my discipline. And there, there are narratives out there that say, you know, a disciplinary process was offered to me and I fled from justice. That's just oh, categorically yeah. false. That never happened. Um, but uh, the, I'm, I'm glad that they chose that path because at that time I was on a mission to get everything in my life back. And I would have said anything, done anything, faked everything, jumped through any hoop they put in front of me just for that reason, Uh, just to get my old life back, to get my status back, to get my role back. I mean, I was, I can feign repentance with the best of them. Uh, I can (laughs) fake that stuff and everybody would believe it. And, and so I'm glad they didn't offer me that because I would have faked it uh, mm-hmm. and it would have most likely prolonged uh, sort of the whole process of coming to the end of myself and, uh, and allowing God to do his deconstructive work. So the disciplinary process and the restoration process that God himself put me through over the years that I outline in stages throughout the book – was far more effective. Um, it was harder than anything any denomination could have come up with. It was longer than anything any denomination could have come up with. It was more painful and at the same time incredibly effective and um, and very liberating and and very um, unconventional. I mean, there's no denomination on the planet that would have written this process out for me the way God did. And I'm very grateful for that. So, um, yeah, it's, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, we, we don't do this stuff very well. Um, and there are lots of opinions out there from people. Anytime a person falls publicly, everybody has something to say about it, whether they, even though they don't know the details of the situation and all the people involved, people say stuff about it. Uh, they talk about it. They get a lot of clicks on their website or on their social media pages because they talk about it. And, you know, it, it just, it gives the impression that the church doesn't know what the hell they are doing mm. with someone, especially an esteemed leader crashes and burns. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I talk about that process, some in the book, but ultimately it's a book about it. it I set out to write a very raw, real memoir of the last 10 years of my life. Actually, I go back to about 2012. So, uh, you know, 14 years of my life or Mm -hmm. so, um, or 12 years of my life. But, um, I, I, I really wanted people to get a sense of how God's grace meets us in the darkest corners we find ourselves in. And so in order to do that, I had to talk about my dark corners. Uh, Some of those dark corners are well-known to people, and some of those dark corners I am exposing for the first time in this book. And that was really, really hard to do. I had to relive some of the most difficult moments in my life. There are stories in there about my kids and how they reacted and responded to all of this and the damage that was done to them. There are stories in there about my ex-wife and how this damaged her and, uh, you know, all of that stuff. I mean, I, 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 it, it wasn't easy to do. In fact, I had a great editor who pulled stuff out of me that I would have rather keep, that I would have rather kept concealed, um, but, uh, but it was incredibly difficult, incredibly painful. I cried more tears in the 18 months writing this book than I think I did in all the years of my life previously. Um, mm. And my wife and daughter can testify to that because they both live with me. Uh, so in that sense, it was very difficult. But man, it was so cathartic. And it was, it was surprisingly healing. I didn't set out to write this book because I needed more healing But in fact, in writing this book, I experienced some really deep healing that I don't think could have happened had I not written the book. Mm. 
you know, one of the things you write about is just the, the previous books that you had written. And, you know, I had read those back in the day and had had listened to you, you know, uh, along the way. Um, and But you, you mentioned uh, this was uh, from One Way Love, uh, you know, grace is being loved when you're unlovable. And and certainly that was uh, pre uh, pre pre fall uh, or or you know uh, pre discovery and all of that, and you just talk about like how after you actually go through this stuff, um, I mean you you could write the you know it's a great quote right, but after you go through it, uh, you really uh, understand what it really means. And, yeah, you know, before that, it's kind of a, a, a way of speaking and a, a platitude, and yeah, it's just yeah, grace is yeah, yeah, loving the unlovable. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, then, and, and then you're in it. Uh, it yeah, it gets real. It's very different. I I um, I talk about the difference between getting grace and grace getting us. And, um, and the difference between, like I said before, grace on paper and grace in practice. And, and the fact of the matter is I don't think you can go from getting grace to grace getting you without some kind of crash and burn. It doesn't have to be something catastrophic. It doesn't have to be public. It doesn't have to be something that is, you know, destructively ruinous across the board. But simply something that gets you to the point of realizing – I'm out of resources. I can't fix me and I can't fix this. Some people experience this as parents with their children who have gone off the deep end and no matter what they do or what they try or what they say, they can't seem to woo their child back. And they get to a point where they realize I'm not in control and I've never been in control. And that makes me feel internally chaotic and scared. And so for different people, it's different things, different circumstances that get them to that place of desperation and realization. But the fact of the matter is, I don't think you can go from one to the other without destruction of some sort, pain, loss, suffering of some sort. I think that is key. And you see that throughout the Bible also. Um, I mean, there is a, there, and ironically, someone asked me last week, how has your theology changed over the years. And I said, interestingly, my theology hasn't changed. If anything, mm. I've just dug deeper where I already was, but it hasn't changed. It's just that it's become so much more real to me than it was before. And I believed it before. And I wrote about it before. I preached about it before. I mean, I was known as the grace guy in some religious circles. So it's not like I wasn't out there saying these things. Uh, but crashing and burning and doing so publicly, that forces you to reckon with God's forgiveness of you in such a way that it just softens you over time. You know, I, I said in a sermon not long ago that um, I think I'm probably more forgiving now than I used to be. And it's not because I've read books on forgiveness or listened to sermons on how to be a better forgiver. I haven't set out to, tr I haven't even set out to try and be a better forgiver. Um, I've just, I have just spent years now coming to terms with God's forgiveness of me in the face of my many failures. And over time, that just sort of softens you and you wake up one day and go, wow, I don't, I don't hold grudges as easily as I used to. And I haven't even been trying. And it's just a good reminder that we all say in theological circles that, you know, justification is God's work and sanctification is a cooperative work between us and God. And I got to tell you, my experience has been justification is all of God's work and sanctification is all of God's work because, um, I mean, I, I didn't go from where I was 10 years ago to where I am now in terms of just mental, spiritual, and emotional health because I really devoted myself to being a better man. I mean, that was not the case at all. Um, it was God doing his work in me at times very painfully, um, setting me free from things that I didn't even know I was enslaved to and continuing to do so. Um, and that sort of has not only increased my trust in God, that he will in fact do the work, 
but it's also sort of decreased my trust in myself, which I think is a very healthy thing. Mm. When when mm-hmm. our trust in God goes up and our trust in ourselves goes down, I think we're on the right track. Amen. Uh, yeah, when you talking about the sanctification, uh, justification, and imputation, you know, all the great theological terms. And you write about it in the book when you were like, you know, kind of did the Willow Creek stint. Um, and you're sitting on the stage with theologians uh, talking about these great, wonderful concepts of grace. And all of a sudden, it, it kind of hit you, I think. And you said something like, God, who the hell cares? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's beautiful. Yeah, no, it's one of my favorite stories that I write about in the book. Uh, all of that happened about six to seven months after my very public crash and burn, and um, and I sort of in the book I talk about the context surrounding that particular conference that I was at, where I was on the panel, and these were all friends of mine on the panel, people who we used to host a large conference in Fort Lauderdale every year called Liberate. And the people that were on stage that day with me were the same people that I would bring in for Liberate. So these are people that I knew that I knew for a long time, friends. And we were having the same kind of discussion that we would always have when we were at Liberate on stage talking about these things. Like you said, talking about, you know, beautiful, big theological concepts like justification and imputation and God's mm-hmm. grace and all of that stuff. And while the, while the conversation was smart, it wasn't helpful because what very few people knew at that time, even though on the outside I looked like I was on the road to recovery and yes, I crashed and burned, but you know I was now owning it and had come to terms with it. Uh, I was bona fidely suicidal at that time. My divorce had just been finalized. Um, my family was completely broken up. Um, my reputation was shot. I hurt a lot of people, people that I knew and loved especially, but also people that I didn't know um, who looked to me as a spiritual leader of some sort. Um, I mean, I, I was just reeling in guilt and shame and sadness and loss and regret and all of those things. And uh, I did. I was sitting on that stage listening to that conversation, participating in that conversation like I had many, many times before and thinking to myself, who the hell cares? I just need I, I just need someone to tell me why I shouldn't put a bullet in my head today like that. I, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. trying to I'm suffocating here under the weight of my own struggle. I need help and I need it bad. And as lofty and as factual as this conversation was, it was not helpful at all. It's like the the substance was there in a sense, but the truth wasn't. And um, and I I needed desperately, I needed hope. And I decided, I mean, I sort of unconsciously, consciously decided sitting on the stage that day that if God were to ever give me any kind of platform again, small, big, meat, doesn't matter, didn't care. Uh, but if God were to ever give me an outlet to speak, to write, to minister again, it would now be to a completely different group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, not that the former audience would not gain from or pay attention to what I would say thereafter. But I mean, I became during that season so connected to the recovery community uh, I mean, I have, I, I thankfully didn't have never had a substance abuse problem, but I have family members who have and have been in recovery for a long time. Lots of friends, people that I've met in the last five, six years. And uh, I discovered pretty quickly after connecting with those communities and those people that these are my people. Mm. Even though what we are recovering from may be different we're all in recovery and we all know we're in recovery. And I do spend a significant amount of time in the book talking about that and trying to help people understand what recovery is. Uh, We tend to think of people in recovery programs from things like alcohol and drugs and sex and that sort of thing, overeating, whatever. Um, But if you're a human being, you are in recovery. You are, we have learned to cope with the hardness of life by connecting ourselves to unhealthy things, whatever that might be. 
um, by having an unhealthy relationship with something or someone. And so we're all, we're all in recovery. We've all felt rejected. We all have insecurities. We all have fears. Uh, we all deal with secrets that we either had or currently have. Um, and so we're, we're in recovery. So I, you know, I, I say all the time these days that there are really two kinds of people in this world, <laughs> people in recovery who know that they are and people in recovery who think that they aren't. But there's nobody who's not in recovery. Um, and so there's a strong recovery element to this book from beginning to end. And I'm, I suppose that as I connect even more so with the recovery community in the years to come, that if I ever write another book or books, every single one of them will have a very, very strong recovery theme running throughout because that is, that is the community that I belong to now. And, um, and it's, (laughs) it's a hell of a lot healthier than some of the communities I belonged to before way healthier. I mean, it is so much more refreshing to sit in a room with people who know that they're bad than with people who think that they're good. So mm. much more refreshing. Um, so I, I'm, I'm grateful for the crash, the burn, the magnificent defeat um, of my former life because without it, I wouldn't be where I am now. Mm. Yeah, you know, I remind people often that, you know, <laughs> Jesus, uh, the first time he ever speaks in public, uh, he, he talks about recovery, right? Um, mm. he, he says, I came to bring recovery of sight to the blind. Yeah. That's all of us unaware people of just mm. like all this stuff that's up underneath the surface in our lives that we're not dealing with. And so, I mean, re- recovery, uh, I think, is just the idea of like, I am I am recovering the life that God intended me to live from the mm-hmm. beginning before mm-hmm. all hell broke loose. Yeah. And so, yes, we're all in recovery. And, you know, I, the, the thing that uh, just being around church world and recovery world, it's like this, you know, in church world, you know, the recovery people are, we're, you know, we're those people. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in, the re- in reality, it's just, I mean, recovery, it is the Christian the, it is the journey uh, of of transformation, man. We, we're all in recovery, and uh, mm. you know, certainly in the book. Gosh, you know, you you have me at, at hello when you're quoting Mike Iaconelli and Brennan Manning, and you got a Rich Mullins quote in there, and I mean, like you know, Iaconelli's book, Messy Spirituality, was like one of the best books out incredible. there. Incredible. Interestingly, I I just saw a post. From Russell Brand, ah. who is someone that I admire from a distance yeah. uh, because he's very vocal about his own journey in recovery. Uh, but I just saw a post by him a couple weeks ago where he was holding up messy spirituality. Oh, wow. And he said, it, this book was recommended to me and I can't wait to dive in. And then two days later, he posted a, a, a reel on Instagram where he was reading two pages out of it. So I had to comment. I was like, dude, this book is the gold standard. Like, I mean, when people ask me, uh, especially if they are wrestling with the idea of grace and they ask me for a list of books they can read, uh, Mike Iaconelli's book, Messy Spirituality, and Brendan Manning's book, Ragamuffin Gospel, are the two primary books I recommend. And so it was super encouraging to see that Mike's book was getting some significant airtime uh, and being exposed to a much larger audience and a much different audience than it probably has been before. So, yeah, those guys, um, you know, I never had the privilege of meeting either of those guys. Um, and I wish I had because mm. there's no doubt that I would be good buddies with them. No doubt. Um uh, but yeah, that's, you know, I kind of, guys like them, even Philip Yancey, oh, yeah. been super helpful. He's been a friend over the years and he's been super helpful to me and very encouraging to me. Even after my crash and burn, he's been very encouraging to me. Um, I mean, people like that who are well acquainted with church life, who understand that something's missing in this community, something, the, the fundamental 
tenet of grace seems to be missing. And even when it's spoken about, there are always caveats, always. Like I heard more growing up in church, I heard more about what grace wasn't than what it was. Anytime grace was brought up, whether it was in my Christian schools or youth group or Sunday school classes or whatever, every time grace was brought up, it would talk very, you know, the, the teacher would talk very generically about God's grace and God's love for us, but then it was quickly followed by, now this doesn't mean that you can go out and sin. And, and, and so I learned way, there was so much more airtime given to what grace wasn't than what it was. And, uh, and I think those guys, in a lot of ways, at least in the 20th century, late 20th century, those, those guys were pioneers. They were, they were recovering a message that had been lost for so long. And because it had been lost for so long, it seemed new to people. It seemed novel to people. And I say all the time, I'm like, listen, this message, they'll come, people will come up to me like, oh my gosh, your message is changing my life or something like that. And I'm very quick to go, listen, this is not my message, first of all. Uh, and it's not a new message. It's just so old and it's been lost for so long that it seems new, but it's really not. And uh, whether you're talking about people of faith or people who aren't of any faith, uh, no one can deny our own thirst for grace, especially in the face of our screw-ups. I mean, everybody, you don't have to be a Christian to go, I really screwed up, I hope my wife forgives me. I really screwed up, I hope my kid forgives me. Um, I really screwed up and did a lot of damage and I hope my father forgives me or my son forgives me or whatever the case. I mean, there is this universal longing for grace, especially when we screw up, mm. especially when we crash and burn, when we when we hurt someone that we love. And so um, so I, I said, this is in, in, I, somewhere in the book, I think I said, or maybe it was just to the publisher, but I said, this is not a book for Christians and it's not a book for non-Christians. It's, it, this is a book for human beings, yeah. men, women, people of faith, people not of faith. I'm just telling my story and, and telling it in a way that is raw, unedited, embarrassing, um, and yet uh, I'm also in telling you those parts of my story going to point to the only hope I found in the desert, um, which is the hope of God's grace. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm both excited and a little nervous about its upcoming release, to be honest with you. I mean, I'm, I'm putting, I'm, 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 I'm going to go stand in the, I'm going to stand in the public square with no clothes on. And that's not a very easy thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, uh, but you know, I think we talked about this on the last time you're on. It's like, man, that is where our freedom lies. Though mm -hmm. it's like when we, hey, here I am. You know, uh, the the good, the bad, the ugly, the warts, uh, the toe fungus. I don't know, whatever. Man, mm -hmm. it's it's that that's that's our freedom. Uh, it, it is because now I don't have to hide. I don't have to worry about somebody finding something out about me. I don't know, man. It, it's all out there. Yeah. 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 And we keep accumulating things along the way. Yeah. So, you know, I'm like, okay, you know, uh, a lot of the secrets that I had have been exposed, but what about the ones I have now? <laughs> and what about the ones I'll have tomorrow? Yeah. And what about the ones I'll have in two years from now? Yeah. I mean, you know, we all have PhDs in secret keeping. And so, um, and so it's, it's, that's why recovery is a lifelong process. It's not, it's not like we arrive at some place. It's that we're journeying toward a place, a place that we will not fully arrive at in this world. Mm -hmm. It is a lifelong process. And the people that I know who are in recovery, who stay sober, for example, are people who recognize that their recovery is a lifelong process. The people who, uh, who relapse, most frequently are people who go through the process of recovery and they get to a point where they think, okay, I'm, I'm good. good. I'm, good. I'm on the other side of it. I'm good. Um, and that's always an incredibly dangerous place to be. So I'm, I'm, I, I can't imagine ever crashing and burning the way that I did and bottoming out the way that I did and all of that stuff. Um, but at the same time, I'm like, dude, I know I'm capable. I know I'm capable. And as long as I know I'm capable, 
it helps me keep shorter accounts with myself. It helps me be a little bit more honest. I don't get to a place where I think, I've got this. That's never going to be a temptation for me or that's never going to be a problem for me or that's never going to be an issue for me again. I just assume that all of the issues I've always had, I will always have. And I think that's probably... Um, that acceptance is such a key component to recovery. I don't believe that the demons we have uh, will ever go away. I think it's not a matter of us ridding ourselves of our demons as, as much as it is acknowledging that they are there and recognizing where they reside. And then no, ha- that information helps you to prevent them from controlling your life. Um, But the moment you think you're back in control and you've got this licked and you're, you're good. You're on the other side now. That's, that's when you're in trouble. Uh, The, the, the victory Christians are, they're, they're gathering the torches and pitchforks right now as you speak. Yes, yes, they are. I have no doubt. (laughs) And, And you know, the funny thing is when I talk to recovery people, a lot of them will give some testimony. Most of them aren't church people, but a lot, some of them will give some testimony to time spent in church. Oh, yeah. And at the time, they were very well aware of their own internal struggles and the secrets they were keeping and the places they were going and the things they were doing. And yet there was so much talk about victory and conquering and all this stuff that it just disconnected them because they're like, this doesn't even correspond with reality. Like, I need... I need a God who saves the faithless, not the faithful. Mm-hmm. I need a, I, I mean, I need a God who curls up on the bathroom floor with me and weeps with those who weep. I need a God who understands that my struggle has always been and will always be because you can oftentimes be looked at as a second-class Christian if you haven't rid yourself of all of the problems that you had five years ago. And I've just, you know, I'm kind of, I, I say this in the book and I say it all the time. I have finally arrived at the very freeing place of being able to admit that my life doesn't look like Jesus. My life looks like someone who needs Jesus. <laughs> and, I, and, and I think in the end, that's what glorifies God the most. You know, it's the, what, glorif- what glorifies a water fountain? You coming thirsty and drinking, period. And so, um, you know, bringing our strengths and bringing our victories and all of that stuff, I just, yeah, that stuff wears thin on me. And it discourages a lot of people from Christianity who struggle. It certainly does. You know, I just, Rich Mullins, one of the, my, you know, one of, I think it was one of his songs, but it's just that idea, you know, we're not as strong as we think we are. All right. Right. And uh, boy, I, I think, I think all of us in our faith journey, you know, we kind of start out and you know, we get on the knowledge and performance track. And if I just, you know, get more Bible and pray harder, whatever that means, uh, I'm going to get better and better and better. And somehow I'm going to arrive at nirvana. And, you know, the great thing about our, our crashes and burns is like, man, God just like says, no, that that's really stupid. Um, and, and, and then he brings us to our knees, literally, and then we kind of figure out that, like, man, I actually may need a Savior, <laughs> like, right, yeah. every minute of every day, and I may need mm-hmm. to be dependent on him, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, it's true. No, I, I quote a, um, a, psych, a psychiatrist by the name of Patricia Deegan in the book who wrote an amazing article on recovery, not a person of faith as far as I know but wrote an amazing article on recovery, probably the most insightful article on recovery that I've, I've ever read. And she works with people in recovery. She's in recovery herself. Um, and she talks about recovery being a growing acceptance of our limitations. Mm, mm. And I love that because that is, a, that is a realistic view of the human condition and the fact that I remain a broken person and this remains a broken world and I live I, it, I live with only broken people in this world. Um, and so I, I it, it's just so much more realistic. Uh, I find a lot of idealism in the Christian messaging these days 
promising people that if they just do this or do that or focus here or focus there, that they will be able to get on the other side of this particular problem forever. And, you know, there are certain things that I'm on the other side of. I'm on the other side of my of my divorce from my first wife. I'm on the other side of some of the harder moments with my kids. I'm on the other side of a lot of things. Um, but the fact of the matter is I still on a daily basis struggle at some level with a low degree fever of sadness because of the hurt that I caused people that I love. Um, the regret that I have about squandering what God had given me, uh, opportunities lost, um, you know, people who, people who perhaps may question who God is because they looked up to me and I crashed and burned. I mean, there's, there is a lot of that, I, which, which is, you know, which is why I say recovery is a lifelong process. Uh, I'm not on the other side of me. While I may be on the other side of certain problems, I'm not on the other side of me. And wherever I go, there I mm, am, mm. dealing with the same stuff that's been plaguing me for 50 years. And uh, and I, I think that honestly, that's a that is the formula that God intended so that we stay tethered to His grace and keenly aware of how desperately we need it. Yeah, I think it was Dallas Willard that talked about the idea that, uh, you know, grace is is really for us as Christians, uh, mm -hmm. and, and we burn through it like a 747 uh, on jet fuel, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, he actually uh, talked about, you know, the 12 steps, like one of the greatest gifts to mankind of the 20th century, Absolutely. right? Because yeah. it is the model of the transformational process. Like if you want to mm -hmm. know how to do Christian, just live, eat, and breathe the 12 steps because that, right. that's what uh, it is. Dude, yep. I could not agree with you more. I oh, could yeah. not agree with you more. And that is something I did not know until after I crashed and burned. My wife, Stacy was a, um, uh, a facilitator. She went through Celebrate Recovery herself years ago um, and then became a facilitator and uh, I was familiar with the 12 steps because of people that I was associated with before. Um, and then when we met and we were sort of comparing notes and she was telling me a little bit about Celebrate Recovery, which I was very familiar with. Um, but as we looked at it more carefully, we realized this is, this is a bit too sanitized of a 12-step program. Like it's, it's, it's promising victory in ways that I'm not sure we can promise in good faith to people. Um, and so, you know, looking at the 12 steps and going, okay, how do I read these through the lens of the gospel? How do I read these through the lens of grace? Um, has been massive for me. Uh, it's been massive for our church. It's been massive for my wife. Um, I mean, being able to wake up every day and admit <laughs> and acknowledge to yourself um, that I, I need help. Um, you know, whether you wake up in the morning feeling strong and vibrant or wake up in the morning feeling sad and depressed, defeated and depressed, um, I mean, regardless, waking up every day and going, I know I need help. Uh, my, my life apart from God is out of control. Uh, my life internally, my life externally is out of control. I need God's grace every second of the day in order for me to make it to the end of the day. And I just think there's something really, really healthy about that. It's, it's like I said, it's, it's, it, it is a heavy dose of realism that is necessary and needed uh, in a in a Christian world of idealism, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. You know, you you write about this uh, kind of the um, the uh, devolving uh, into kind of your own uh, certainly failure, uh, but the idea that so many people have of like, man, I I could I would never I I could never do something like that. That could never happen to me. And, and you write about that and just the idea, certainly, you know, it's the confessions of an adulterous heart. And, and it's not necessarily about, uh, you know, adultery the way we think of it, 
But it's just the idea that, like, man, uh, we have hearts that are prone to wonder. Um, and you, you talk about, you know, the, the rage, you know, one of the terms we work with and kind of our you know, just sexual brokenness is the idea of eroticized rage um, and then uh, entitlement, you know, somehow um, when the other person is not, not treating me right, you know, now I, I go victim and I'm entitled to go do whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and the things that kind of go into the recipe to get us to, to like ultimately just violate, you know, our integrity, uh, who we are. Uh, and mm-hmm. boy, I think people have a hard time believing that somehow, you know, that could actually happen to anybody because we're all human. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I was shocked, to be honest with you, that I arrived at the place that I did. And it was only after everything when I had time to reflect with good therapy that I could see kind of the progression, the slow progression that got me to where I was. And it's so slow and it's so subtle that you don't see it at the time or you might see little parts of it, but it doesn't look nearly as big as it is turning into. And, um, and I, you know, I was, I was surprised. Uh, I was also surprised by other people in my world, um, you know, family members, colleagues who responded to all of this in a way that I never thought in a million years they would respond to this. Um, and, uh, and I, I, I do think that you'd be, most people would be shocked that given the right set of circumstances at the right moment, you are capable of just about anything and everything. And Jesus alludes to that by saying basically everything vile that comes out of humanity is already in the heart. It's already there. Um, you know, we don't, thankfully, God's restraining grace keeps us from exercising that all the time. Um, but I mean, it's all there. And I think that's what's so powerful about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is he really cuts through the outer behavior of a person and gets to the heart of the issue when he says things like, you've heard it said that if you commit adultery, you know, you're, you're in big trouble. I tell you that if you have ever been lustful in your heart before God, you're just as in trouble. Or anger as a, and, and murder being the same thing in the court of God because it's a heart issue first. Um, and so I think we become so fixated on behavior, bad behavior, behavior modification. We, we look at the fruit of the problem and we treat it as if it's the root of the problem, mm. when in reality it goes much deeper than that. And, um, and I, I was talking to somebody very close to me, um, one of my children a few days ago who's going through a really difficult time, and I was counseling him to go to his therapist. And we were talking about some of the things that are going on in his life And I was talking about this need to really dive beneath the surface and get to the root of some of these things. And God bless him so honestly. He's just a brutally honest kid. But so honestly, he said, I hear you, Dad. But to be honest with you, I'm really scared to go under the surface because I'm afraid of what I will find. Mm. And I'm like, dude, like that is so refreshing to hear that. So refreshing to hear that. Um, you know, rather than something going, I do go under the surface or, you know, what, what are you talking about? I mean, to say what he said, like, I'm, I know I'm avoiding that because I'm afraid of what that will look like when I confront it. And, um, and I just, you know, I think we, we need a lot more of that. Tell us when the book, when's the book coming out? When's it going to be released? So, uh, it's available for pre-order now, okay. uh, you know, Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, whatever, online, anywhere where books are found and sold. Um, it's entitled, like you mentioned, Carnage and Grace. The subtitle is Confessions of an Adulterous Heart. Uh, and it comes out March 5th. So, you know, not too far from now. Um, and I got my copies about maybe three weeks ago, held it in my hand for the mm-hmm. first time. Uh, and was, to be honest with you, overwhelmed. Uh, In a lot of ways, I was overwhelmed. 
in some ways I was overwhelmed by how underwhelmed I was. <laughs> I don't know exactly what I expected to happen when I finally held it in my hand. It's my eighth book, so it's not like I haven't written books before, but this is the first one I've written since 2014, and it's certainly the first one I've written since everything fell apart. So it's been, you know, it's coming out 10 years after my last book, and if anybody's familiar with my previous books and they read this one, I think they'll see the message is the same, but the messenger is very different. And, um, and that's, you know, that was sort of an inevitability, uh, you know, 10 years down the road, not only am I on the other side of that, you know, that crash in 2015, um, but I'm, you know, I'm 10 years older. (laughs) I've had, 10 more years to reflect on life and myself and all of the things that accompany divorce and failure and broken families and, you know, all of addiction, all of that stuff uh, I've had time to reflect on. And I've had a lot of help from people, good people that have helped me reflect on that stuff honestly and realistically. So, so I'm, I'm excited for people to read it. Um, you know, it's, it's not PG. I will tell you that, uh, it is, um, you know, parental advisory or what was what it? Parental, whatever it is. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's not PG it's, uh, it's raw. It's not uh, graphic in any kind of, um, classless way at all. Um, and I don't name names of people. Uh, there are a few names that I name because those are names that have been in public as it, as it concerns this situation also. But, but I don't name names. I don't talk about other people's sins. I talk about mine predominantly. Um, but it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a story that I'm excited for people, both people of faith and people not of faith to read. I think it's a, it's a good introduction to uh, the fallenness and brokenness of humanity and the amazing grace of God in the face of it. I, I, that's what I'm hoping will happen, especially for people who are not of faith, who may have a twisted, somewhat caricatured understanding of who God is because of what they've heard Christians say. Um, I'm really hoping that this will be a fresh introduction to who God really is. So we'll see. Uh. Well, having having read it, uh, I I think I think you uh, certainly accomplished uh, the goal. Um, it, it is a book for humanity, um, and just the the realness of of who we are as human beings. And uh, man, uh, thank you uh, for for being willing to join us again. And you know, we'll we'll probably do this again. Um, yeah, it's kind I of. I think fun. we should do it once a month. I know. I'm I'm literally like you know we. We, uh, I love conversations like this with like-minded people who understand um, sort of, you know, the human condition and how God's grace uh, interacts with that. So, um, yeah, I always appreciate my conversations with you, Roan. Appreciate the invitation to come back on. Appreciate your kind words about the book. It was certainly a labor of love, and I'm, I'm grateful that, um, that you had a chance to read it and thought it might be helpful. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate that. Absolutely. Uh, highly, highly recommend. Um, so man, uh, we will, uh, reconvene next time, my brother. Uh, great, Sounds good. great having you on. Thanks, Tully. Thanks, Ron. Yep. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. To learn more about what you've heard today and to engage with the Sex, God, and Chaos team, visit sexgodchaos.com.